I'm Aaron Lammer. Today on the books that changed us, Wesley Lowry, the author of They Can't Kill Us All, Ferguson, Baltimore, and a New Era in America's Racial Justice Movement. Wesley is also a correspondent for the Quibi show 60 and 6. Wesley Lowry, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, let's cut right to it. I would love to talk to you about a book that you read as a, uh, a young person that influenced your decision to become a writer and journalist. Sure. One of the books I think that was really influential to me when I read it in college was David Cullen's Columbine. Hmm. It, this is the like definitive nonfiction account of what happened at Columbine High School, um, and he spent like a decade on it. Now, I was a kid during Columbine. It's some, I think I was nine years old, right? So I remember watching like the coverage on Oprah and and the news, and so it was kind of one of those like definitional events for me. Um, and I was among kind of the first wave of students to deal with kind of having little booklets in our school classrooms about what do we do if there's a mass shooter and having lockdown drills. And so then to be in college and kind of be early adulthood and to read this like really penetrating and detailed accounting of what really happened and, and seeing how even a lot of the things I remembered ended up not being true, it showed me a lot of kind of the power and the role of journalism in terms of creating historical record and creating definitive historical record. And so I've read this book you know, maybe four or five times, one of the few books I've read multiple times. And I just think it, again, kind of, in my view, is one of the kind of gold standards of what a contemporary, in relative real-time nonfiction book can be. I remember when I read Columbine, it was shocking to me, and this is not shocking in 2020, but it was shocking at the time, how many things people got wrong about something that had happened like yesterday and then a week ago. It's like more misinformation flowing out from a single event than I think anything that had really come before it. It was remarkable. Just all of the things, I mean, and fully developed narratives, you know, I mean, I, I remember in youth group, we'd all talk about the girl who said no or whatnot. The, the, she supposedly asked, are you a Christian? Do you believe in God? And, and she's in the library and she says, yes, I do. And she gets shot and killed. And, and there's like this massive like industry that sprouts up around it. Her parents, I think, write a book and there's a movie and like, and none of it's true. It didn't happen. Wasn't it like that the girl who had that actual experience had survived and then the parents were like, be quiet, you're ruining our like cottage industry here. It was like, yeah, I, th I think it was a different woman. Like there yeah. were other students who were in the room and, you know, who, it was in this library and there are other people there. And suddenly the other witnesses and the woman who this actually pseudo happened to, because it was never exactly the way we all like understood it, all came out and were like, no, this isn't what happened. I always took one of the central questions of that book to be, what was their motivation and how even with like the most deep multi-year reporting, I still don't think I could definitively say like what was in those kids head. Like sometimes why people do things is 
almost unknown to them. I wonder if you could talk about a little bit like the portrayal in the book of the two main characters. And I know that there was also a certain controversy over how empathetic and sympathetic you can feel in parts of the book, just getting to know people so well, people who are complicated. Of course. And what's also in, in this case particularly, and again, we have to remember Columbine is one of the early kind of national event mass shootings, right? Which unfortunately is now almost a calendar item for us. But the at a time, there was still this sense of why would anyone do such a thing? It was still felt novel or different. Beyond that, Eric Harris and Dylan Kleibold are the teenagers, they're high school students themselves, right? And so there was already, especially at the time, there was already kind of this built-in empathy for them and this weird, like, why would this happen? Why would you ever do such a thing? Were they bullied? Was it the music? Was it the video games? Was it? And by the way, there was all types of description of that, a lot of which ends up not being true, right? No, they're not part of a trench coat mafia. No, they weren't like complete losers who had no friends. No, they weren't, you know, it wasn't Marilyn Manson. No, but all of these things kind of get thrust out and repeated a lot in the national media in the early days, and they start to settle into kind of our understanding. I do think it's really interesting. You know, I, over the years, in addition to doing a lot of criminal justice reporting, have covered a lot of mass shootings. I've been involved in a fair number of the, the kind of response and the coverage of these cases. And I gotta be honest, the reporting for me on the shooters themselves is always the least rewarding part of it. I don't think I've almost ever learned anything I thought was that fascinating or that interesting about them. In fact, for me, I'm always attempting to be much more focused on the victims, on the stories that happen inside or around the shooting, right? There are all types of angles and things that are interesting and stories to be told. And the shooters themselves kind of end up not being that interesting. And I almost think that what, what I'll say for Cullen's book and even some of the backlash I got at the time, right? A lot of the reporting on these mass shootings is derivative of Dave Collins' initial work. And so it's easy now to say like, okay, well, now we know that we're not going to find the smoking gun answer, right? Well, but one of the reasons we know that is because the guy spent a decade trying to do it. Could you tell me about a book that changed you? A book that you feel like you read it and you're like, oh, I'm going to carry this around with me for the rest of my life. And it'll be something I'm sort of thinking about continually. So- Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Sons, uh, which is a classic and is timely because she's got a new book, I believe, coming out. The excerpt in the New York Times Magazine is a tab open on my computer that as soon as we stop talking, I will get to finally read. And, and I think that like Isabel Wilkerson is like, oddly underrated, which is a weird thing to say for a like mega best-selling author or Pulitzer Prize winner, but she's one of the best writers writing words. And one of the reasons I list The Warmth of Other Sons is I think that it helped solidify for me the extent to which it was important to interrogate and understand why the world is the way it is. That if someone lives somewhere today, it's because of a series of decisions that were made previously. And that those decisions aren't just individual decisions, they're also societal decisions and policy decisions. And so this book, which kind of tells the story of the Great Migration, of the Black Americans who come north following the failure of Reconstruction 
and who changed the landscape of cities like Milwaukee or Chicago or Omaha or Cleveland, where I grew up, Detroit. That story, if you don't understand the Great Migration and you don't understand how all these folks ended up where they ended up and how that changing of the racial dynamics of these cities then factored into the decades to come and the politics there and the economics there prompting white flight, you can't understand America today. And I think that for me, that was one of the moments reading that book where I realized that journalism was about more than just writing down what happened today. And that to understand what's happening in this moment today, I have to understand as a writer and as a reporter, the history in a real comprehensive way, not just a list of facts that are historical, but the thematic history of what has happened and how we have gotten to the point where we are. When I look at Columbine and The Warmth of Other Suns, one thing I see in common between these books are writers who've really like stepped outside of time and said, I'm going to write the definitive book about this piece of history. Like no one else is going to need to do it after me, after how thoroughly I cover this subject. Is that something you're attracted to in writing? And does that ambition ever like brush up against your own extremely hectic day-to-day cycle? Yes. I mean, I find it extremely attractive in part because it's not something that I've often done or had the ability to do. Yeah. I think that as my career has progressed, I've had more space to write things that feel a little bit more definitive or a little more sweeping. But that hasn't been, I mean, even as I did my book, which was kind of a a director's cut to the early years of Black Lives Matter and kind of a behind the scenes of what it was like to be on the ground reporting it. I wrote that book knowing it was not going to be the definitive account of what was happening in those moments, in part because I was writing a story that wasn't done happening yet. Hmm. And I think that what's remarkable in both of these cases is the ability to step back and document something that has happened where the story is done and now kind of come all the way back through it. You know, one thing I used to say when I was at the Post, I would talk about this all the time, and I talk about this when I talk to people about developing story ideas, is sometimes there is a real advantage to waiting for a story to finish and then writing the definitive account of it. And I actually think more of our newspapers and magazines should do that. The vast majority of journalistic coverage of any story happens when the least amount of information is available. And I think that the best pieces very often happen at the very end where you can actually get every piece of paper and talk to every single person. And and that work ends up often being some of the best. Could you tell me about a book that you couldn't get out of your mind when you were writing your own book, something that served as a model or just was stuck in your head? Sure. So one of the books I read very early on, you know, for me, my book was first person. And that's not writing I had had any experience doing before. I was never an essayist. I never had written about myself maybe once or twice, but never in any substantive way. And I was going to do a whole book where I was a character. So because of that, I read a ton of memoir and I read a bunch of first-person books by and about journalists. And the one that was the most helpful and still one of my favorites was The Night of the Gun by David Carr, the great and late New York Times media columnist um, and before the editor of Washington City Paper. And the thing that was so helpful about that book or so interesting about that book, you know, one of the things I 
was most concerned about in first person writing was how do I write about myself without being too much about myself? And two, how do you be a first person narrator without sounding like a jerk, right? Like full of yourself and self-obsessed and like, for those who haven't read it, I mean, I think Light of the Gun is a remarkable book for any number of reasons. And it's David Carr reporting on his own life, uh, that he was someone who'd struggled with substance abuse and domestic violence, and it had a really kind of storied and messy and hairy life before very late in life kind of becoming this national figure. And he went back and interviewed all of the people who knew him back then. And the lead anecdote around this is this one night, this one night he can't really forget where his buddy pulled a gun on him and he goes back and reinvestigates it to figure out what happened on the night of the gun. Uh, and I won't spoil what happens even though the book's been out like 20 years, but <laughs> it's a really fascinating thing for a few reasons. The first was that I thought he just struck the perfect tone of kind of interrogating himself in a way that was willing to make fun of himself and his own ridiculousness. But second, as someone who does journalism that relies very often on people's memories and accounts, and as someone who's gotten older now, and I'm now just now old enough to have forgotten some things, right? It's something I think about a lot because as he went back to reinvestigate, he realized there were a lot of things he had remembered one way that in fact, that wasn't what it was. And I think that that perspective, the idea that memory is relative, that something that we remember exactly one way, seven other people could remember differently, is something we don't always consider, and that's not always a room that we grant when we think about what's happened in our own lives or happened historically. I think we live in this Twitter age where the whole world can comment on us, and that's seen as like very cutting. But I remember reading Night of the Gun, and it's like, you want to really hear some like crazy shit, like ask people who actually know you for their unvarnished memories and opinions. I mean, it gets pretty real in the book that also a lot of people didn't have the most positive memories of him. And, and I think that that's really hard, right? I think sometimes we try to live in these worlds where it's like you're a good guy, you're a bad guy. Yeah. And as we know, life doesn't exist on that binary. We are, there's a viral tweet once where it was like, just know that someone's therapist knows everything about you. There's <laughs> <laughs> the idea that like we are all someone's nemesis or like yeah. that person who we like bullied once in fourth grade and we don't even remember it. Like we screwed something, you know, like there is a sense of like we are like messy, flawed human beings living in this really complicated world. And to think that any one of us has like navigated that world without having done harm is kind of insane. <laughs> and again, what I really respected about what Carr did in that book was he was extremely unsparing about himself. It was a lot of stuff like that that a lot, most of us probably would not self-publish. For yourself, now that you're like five years removed from putting out that book, like what do you think of that person that you depicted with the eye in your book? You know, it's, it's really interesting, in part because I, much like the story that I was telling was still happening, Wesley Lowry, the reporter who covers these things, was still being kind of developed. You know, I wrote that book in 2016, and then I went on to cover these same issues for another five years. And so my understanding, the things I know, have changed. And also, one of the things that was fascinating is, as I reread the book, which I did recently, I reread the book 
around George Floyd's death in Minneapolis. Because I'm, like I said, I'm just now at the point where I no longer have full command of every detail of everything that happened in 2014 and 15. And I was like, hmm, I wonder, I wonder if there's something analogous. Let me reread this chapter of this book I wrote about these things. And one of the things I thought was really interesting was one, re-encountering lessons I had previously learned that I've now kind of metabolized. Like the lessons are still there, but I couldn't remember where that had come from. And then re-encountering myself learning those lessons. And I also, I, what I see myself there, I see someone who was under a lot of pressure to be definitive, to know the answer to everything. Not that I think I got like a ton of stuff or anything major wrong in that context, but there was this pressure to kind of be out over my skis a little bit, to, do, to deliver some big analysis or some sweeping things or to know all the history. Or to, and I think that I've had an ability now in some ways almost to be more humble about that, to admit when you don't know something, to ask questions in my writing, not knowing the answer to them. And I think that that's something that I've just, as I've grown more confident as a writer and a reporter, something I'm much more comfortable with. You brought up the idea of writing from a Isabel Wilkersonian remove about history when there is actually like enough time elapsed that you can know. And I think about something like the movements that started in St. Louis and are still alive right now. And I kind of wouldn't know like when that point will be. You know, it's like you kind of always risk being premature. I wonder how you think about it. Like as someone who's been reporting on this stuff for the better part of a decade, how you're starting to think about time and the elapsed history that's already behind us. It's tough. It's very tough when you are living inside of a historical moment to kind of figure out when the contours of it begin and end. I think that and what's also true is that history kind of is living and breathing and moving. Hmm. And when I look at this moment that we're in, right, and you wouldn't want to write the definitive story of Black Lives Matter prior to this, right? Yeah. This clearly seems to be a plot point. Yeah. If you got the book dropping on like uh, March 1st, 2020, that's a, that's a tough, it's, tough it's, it's going to be real tough. It's going to be very difficult, right? And so I think that, you know, it's very likely going to be waves and eras. And, and what's also true, you know, to understand this moment, you have to understand Rodney King. You have to understand Abner Louima in New York. You, you know, like the, there's a bunch of other stories and activists, by the way, that like begin to, you know, till the ground for this moment. And so it's difficult. I've been thinking about this a lot, right? If you wanted to write the story of this movement or this space, where do you start? What does that look like, right? How much of the 90s in LA hip hop are you including? How much of the, because all of that primes the culture for this moment, right? You probably have a whole chapter on the guy who invented the cell phone camera, wherever that guy is. And, and so it is really interesting if you're going to take the long arc of this, right? Like, I'd be really interested in reading a Occupied Wall Street book right now that is able to consider the existence of Bernie Sanders, right? Any book that was written about Occupy was written back when it was like all those losers who didn't accomplish anything. Right. And objectively today, one might have to reconsider that at least a little bit. And, and so I think that there's a, again, these, these kind of narratives get set in place. You think about all the books written about the contract with America and the Republican Revolution and Newt Gingrich, 
in the 90s and early 2000s versus the books written about them today where they're like, oh, yeah, the people who broke our politics. Right. right. And so there is a <laughs> like, the, the perspective does matter. And the book you write in real time often might not look so good. Five years out, 10 years out, 15 years out, I was relieved when I read the, my Ferguson book and was like, okay, so far, I don't look like an idiot yet. And so it's just really, like I said, for me, it's really interesting to think about all of that stuff in this type of context, right? How might what we're living through in this moment be the chapter of a bigger story? And then what is that bigger story and how might we go about telling it? Wesley, thank you so much for doing this. Of course, thank you so much, anytime. The Books That Changed Us is made in partnership with Longform and MailChimp Presents. The show is produced by Janelle Pfeiffer, art by Joel Avellino, music by me, Aaron Lammer. Thank you to Wesley Lowry for sharing the books that changed him. You can find the whole By the Books lineup at MailChimp.com slash presents. <laughs>